0: First time someone disclosed to you their self injury. Do you remember how you responded? I was a sophomore in college, a psychology major, when a couple friends separately told me that they had been self injuring. My heart went out to them, but I didn't know how to help. This set in motion my interest in the topic. But how did my friends decide to disclose their self injury to me? Relatedly, what are some common reasons people give for choosing to disclose or conceal their self injury? What is the best way to respond? And if you responded poorly at first, will that affect their willingness to tell you about their self-injury in the future or damage your relationship? To answer these questions and to provide insights into the relationship between non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, and one's decision to disclose their NSSI, I am joined today from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana by Dr. Brooke Ammerman. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or I-S-S-S, or simply I-triple-S. Dr. Brooke Ammerman is the 2020 recipient of the ISSS Rising Star Award, which recognizes an early career researcher, clinician, or advocate whose work demonstrates potential and commitment to making a significant impact on the field of self-injury. She earned her doctorate at Temple University and completed her predoctoral psychology internship at the VA Puget Sound in Seattle, where she spent the majority of her time working with veterans and conducting research in the psychiatric inpatient program and those in contact with the VA's suicide prevention team. Dr. Ammerman is now an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame and director of the Affect, Suicide, Self-Injury, and Social Triggers Lab, or ASSIST Lab, where she continues to conduct research on non-suicidal and suicidal self-injury. Welcome, Dr. Ammerman. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To start things off, how did you first become interested in researching self-injury, specifically researching self-injury and stigma?
1: I love this question because I feel like everyone is always really interested to in know how did you get interested in a topic like this? And for me, my interest really stems back all the way back to my years as an undergraduate. During this time, I was fortunate enough to have, like randomly signed up with a class with a uh, Dr. Katie Gordon and was able to learn about her research which centered on non-suicidal self-injury, suicidality and disordered eating. So like many of us at that time, I knew some individuals who had engaged in self-injury. And more recently at that time, I was working as a one-to-one staff with a pretty severe client who often engaged in self-injury. And so my initial interest in NSSI was really motivated by wanting to better understand the behavior so I would know how to better approach it in a clinical setting. However, after I started digging more into the research regarding NSSI, which at that time was around like 2010-ish, and the research was really just kind of seeing an uptick in focus that I really became passionate about the topic and became really interested in actually the overlap with traumatic experiences and particularly sexual assault. And that's where my interest in stigma and NSSI was really born from. So I was interested in kind of the differential stigma associated with these experiences. So we know that both of which are associated with a level of stigma, but in a very different way. And so I was really interested in how and why those things were different and how they would relate to different outcomes among individuals who experience traumatic experiences like sexual assault compared to those who engage in kind of more self-directed behavior like NSSI. And from there, I kind of just continued that line of research with a stronger focus on the stigma in NSSI.
0: In thinking about stigma specifically and an individual's decision to disclose their behavior of self-injury, what do we know about the relationship between disclosing a history of self-injury and stigma?
1: We know a lot based on some previous work by Drummond colleagues and Dr. Hastings that Stigma or the fear of stigmatizing responses are cited as a key barrier to disclosure. So we found that in some of our data as well, and it seems to be the case across all disclosure recipients. So not only uh, do individuals have concerns about talking about their NSSI to their friends and family, but also to medical professionals and how they might respond. So while we know that stigma definitely plays a role in disclosing one's NSSI, that greater concern for stigma, the less likely they are to disclose We don't actually have a lot of information about kind of how or what type of stigma is related to NSSI disclosure. For example, we know that there are three main types of stigma. There's public stigma, which is what we most often think of when we think of stigma. There's anticipated stigma, which is the concerns of how someone might react or respond when we tell them about our experience and then internalized stigma, so the personalization or internalization of those public stigma beliefs. And while we know those three exist and they all play some role in disclosure, we don't exactly know the nuances of those relationships. A graduate student in my lab, Caitlin O'Loughlin, is actually working on addressing some of these questions, so hopefully we can have a better understanding of this relationship in the future. But what we do know is that the higher the stigma or perceived stigma by that individual, the less likely they are to disclose and the less likely they would be to seek help from others in the future as well.
0: You mentioned this anticipated stigma and in how individuals might react to disclosures of self injury. And actually, recently you created a questionnaire, a measure called the Self Injury Social Reactions Questionnaire to measure social reactions that people have to disclosures of self injury. Why? is it important to formally assess and measure these types of social reactions that people have to disclosures of self-injury?
1: This is a really great question, and I think there's a lot of reasons why it's important. But for me, or at least in my mind, there's one primary one, and that has to do with how can we educate others and how can we ensure that disclosure process is a positive one for individuals who are disclosing? So this line of research really jumped out to me due to that lapping interest of sexual assault experiences. So Dr. Sarah Ullman, who's at the University of Illinois at Chicago, has done extensive work on the disclosure of sexual assault experiences and has demonstrated how specific types of reactions upon disclosure can relate to certain positive and negative outcomes. And I think this is incredibly valuable Valuable in helping others understand how to respond if someone discloses to them. And there's this pretty strong parallel, again, between that experience and that of NSSI. And we want to be able to tell peers, parents, professionals about the most effective way to respond if someone discloses their self-injury to them. And without having this research on this topic, I think it's really hard for us to be able to provide them with empirically supported answers, because we can say that well, respond in a positive way. Well, what does that mean, right? Um, So to do a formal assessment of this and to get a better understanding of what is positive, what does that look like? What is negative? What does that look like? So we can provide a little bit more kind of tangible evidence and kind of tangible responses to individuals when they ask us, how should we be talking about it? How should we be responding to these disclosures? Then we can also get a good sense of, How do these different responses relate to outcomes over time? Maybe in the immediate future, some of them may be perceived as more negative, but be related to longer term positive outcomes. And without doing a formal assessment of these sort of reactions, it's really hard for us to know any of that information. So my goal in creating this was really to start that train, I guess, um, to really start research in this area to allow us to be able to better understand how should we be responding? Because how the individual perceives those responses also might be pretty different than how we're intending those responses when we actually respond in the moment of disclosure. So starting to understand some of those facets, I think, is just so important to ensure that those disclosure experiences are positive and going to lead to future disclosures and going to lead to openness about their experience and whatever help that that individual needs in recovering from their self-injury.
0: I appreciate you bringing that up because I think so many people listening, including myself, think about how we've responded to individuals who have disclosed their own self-injury to us and wondering, did we respond in the right way? I'm reflecting on when I was a sophomore in college when I had friends disclose their self-injury to me. And reading your research and having this conversation makes me think, Did I do an okay job? Did my response increase their likelihood of seeking help if they need it or seeking support if they needed it? I wanna talk a little bit more about that as we go on in our interview, but before we do, I would like to kind of shift focus a little bit to talking about the reasons that an individual who self-injures might give in choosing to disclose their self-injury. So what are some common reasons that people give for deciding to tell someone about their own self-injury?
1: When we've asked people about kind of why did you choose to disclose at this time or what we're kind of hoping by disclosing, we often see that people are choosing who choose to disclose report that they did so to seek either some sort of formal or informal support. So it was pretty common for people to tell us that they've disclosed their NSSI because they want to feel understood, that they want to experience emotional support, that they want to be comforted about their experience or they want to feel cared for. And I think this is really important for us to be keeping in mind when we're thinking about those disclosure experiences, when someone responds to us thinking about, What are they hoping by telling us this? And it's probably because they want to feel loved and supported. And so when we're thinking about how can we respond, keeping those kind of needs in mind and making sure that those are kind of our first priority in meeting those needs for that individual, especially before we kind of move on to providing resources or talking about other forms of support for the individual, making sure that we're the ones that are helping to provide that support that they've chosen to disclose to us for a reason and helping kind of understand that reason and supporting them through
0: that. That's such a key point because at that point of disclosure, an individual, as you're saying, is to seek support, whereas this is the first time the person on the receiving end may have heard of this and misinterpret the disclosure as self-injuring for attention-seeking. In reality, they're not necessarily self-injuring to seek attention, but they have been self-injuring and now have disclosed in order to seek help which is very different than the purpose of the self-injury. So I think that's really important for so many of us to keep in mind. Does it matter how severe the self-injury is in one's own eyes that influences if and to whom an individual discloses their self-injury?
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, one that we're really honestly just starting to explore. We have found that for individuals who have never disclosed their NSSI, we've asked them why haven't they disclosed their behavior. And in addition to mentioning some concerns about stigma or experiences of shame or embarrassment, One of the most common responses that we get is something along the lines of, like, it's not really a problem for me, or it's not that bad, or it's not that big of a deal. And while we haven't looked yet at how those responses relate to the actual severity of one's behavior, it really does suggest that how an individual views their own behavior or their own perceptions of their behavior is really key in their decision whether or not to disclose. If they don't think their behavior is a problem, they're probably not going to want that formal or informal support, which is really serving as a huge barrier for them to disclose. So regardless of what their behavior actually looks like, how that individual perceives their own behavior can play a really big role in whether or not they choose to disclose.
0: You found both positive and negative reactions that people have when someone discloses their self-injury. You referenced some of those earlier. How do these reactions, whether positive or negative, affect someone's willingness to disclose their self-injury in the future and their likelihood of stopping the self-injury?
1: That's correct. So we found that there's both these kind of positive and negative reactions that individuals might experience when they're disclosing. So individuals report Experiencing positive reactions from others, which might include kind of spending time with them, listening to their experience, reminding them they're doing their, their, their best, telling them that they're not to blame for their behavior, right? All of these kind of emotionally supportive experiences that we're just talking about how it kind of might meet some of those needs of why an individual chooses to disclose in the first place. But individuals also report experiencing negative reactions upon disclosure. And we find that these negative reactions range from kind of some more explicit experiences, which we might traditionally think of as negative reactions. So saying things like, you should be ashamed of your behavior or expressing anger at the individual at the time of disclosure. But we're also finding some more kind of implicit negative reactions, um, if you will, So things like stopping spending time with them or encouraging them to not talk about their behavior anymore or to keep it a secret. And so in the same way that we find that those positive supportive reactions are related to positive outcomes. So we see things like individuals are more willing to talk about their NSSI again in the future. So they self-report that they're more willing to disclose again in the future after receiving those positive reactions. And we also see that those individuals have disclosed to more people and that they're more likely or more willing to disclose to a formal support as well, so either a medical or mental health professional. Providing that positive emotional supportive reaction is really important to facilitate future disclosures, which could also lead to receiving um, professional help in the recovery for self-injury. We actually haven't found any relationship with the discontinuation of their self-injury. We didn't find that individuals who received those positive reactions were more likely to stop engaging in self-injury afterwards, and we didn't find that those who received negative reactions were less likely to stop engaging in self-injury afterwards. But I would like to note a note of caution about some of those findings, because we simply asked individuals about their experience in the past. So while we didn't see the specific relationship, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't one particularly if we think about the relationship between those positive reactions and increased likelihood to disclose to a medical or mental health professional, that over time, we might see the reduction in self-injury or recover from self-injury from those positive reactions. It's just not something that we're seeing that's happening immediately, right? So immediately after disclosing and getting that positive reaction, an individual stopped engaging in the behavior, but something that could exist over time. Is definitely something that we hope to be able to get more information about.
0: So are you also saying then that positive reactions to someone's disclosure of self-injury may not necessarily get them to stop, but it could be a first step in helping them seek treatment?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because we know that disclosing to peers or friends is actually the first source of disclosure for a lot of people. And so by providing that positive reaction, that supportive reaction, that it increases the likelihood that they might tell someone else. And that someone else might be a medical or mental health professional or someone who might kind of link them to those medical or mental health professionals. And so that could be kind of the first step in getting them engaged in more formal care to help recover from self-injury.
0: Now, some people may perceive their own reaction to someone's disclosure of self-injury as appropriate. They think they did a pretty good job of responding calmly and collectively, but the perception on the receiving end of the person disclosing might not match up necessarily. What's the relationship between the perception of someone's reaction to self-injury and, say, depression or other mental health difficulties?
1: Yeah. So this I feel like is one of the toughest things in talking about reactions to self-injury disclosure is that so much of it. And so much of the information that we get is from that, the perspective of that individual who's disclosed their self-injury. And so those perceptions are really important. And just as we see that if someone perceives that reaction as being positive, it's linked to positive outcomes, like being willing to disclose again in the future, we actually, unfortunately, see the reverse with negative outcomes too. So some recent work by another graduate student in my lab, Yeonsu Park, highlights some of these relationships. We see that receiving negative reactions upon disclosure or reactions that are perceived as negative upon disclosure may actually increase an individual's risk for suicidality. Our research suggests that this may be due to the role of depression, such that when an individual discloses their NSSI and perceives that reaction they get as negative, it may increase their risk of depression or increase their depression symptoms, which then in turn increases one's suicide risk. An interesting finding in this work um, is about a specific type of reaction, uh, which we call tangible aid, and this may also be linked to increased depression and suicide risk. So these kind of tangible aid reactions typically consist of providing very specific advice or resources, so maybe the numbers of the local counseling center or offering to get the individual medical care. And we still need to do a little bit of research about this, but really what we think is happening is that perception piece is playing a really big role. So when an individual receives that kind of tangible aid reaction, they may be perceiving it in a certain way, such as um, the individual suggesting like, you're too much for me to handle, or you need more help than I can give you. And so here are these other resources, you should see those versus talking to me about it. So if that kind of tangible aid isn't met with emotional support or perceived to be met with some really solid emotional support too, it may be perceived as being more negative than that individual originally intended, which I think is a really tricky area for us because as someone who may be receiving that disclosure, the first thing you want to do is to be able to provide resources for them, to be able to provide, here's you know numbers for professional help that you know can really help you work on this. But- if we don't include a lot of emotional support with that resource or that advice it might be perceived as being more negative than we actually intend it to be and could ultimately increase the distress of the individual disclosing. It's a really tricky area.
0: What an important point, because that was actually a question I was going to ask you about as far as how we can appropriately direct an individual who discloses their self-injury to professional help without making them feel as if they're too much for us or as if we don't want to support them emotionally or can't support them. What might be some ways specifically to the tangible aid emotionally that we can support them in addition to sending them referrals or giving them referrals and walking with them to care?
1: This is a really great question. And I wish there was like one answer, but I don't think there is, which also really speaks to how personalized this process is. But if we think about, if we were disclosing a distressing experience, what would we want, right? We would want to be heard. We would want to be listened to. We would want to be comforted. So as the recipient of one of those disclosures that I think one of the best things that you can do is really trying to understand that individual really listen to what they're telling you, asking about their experience, asking about their behavior, Showing them that you're not afraid to talk about it, even if you are going to be providing them resources that allows them to really know that your door is still open, even in those circumstances. So you can show them that you're not afraid to talk about it, that you aren't attaching those same stigmas that they might be worried about to the behavior. So instead, really spending some time understanding what it is they're going through, listening to them, asking them what they need really just having that open, honest conversation, like we would if it was any other sort of distressing experience that someone was telling us about? I think sometimes we can get in our own head a little bit about the behavior that they're disclosing themselves rather than thinking of it as a disclosure of a distressing experience. And so if we treat this disclosure how we would a lot of other disclosures of someone close to us, that it's probably gonna be a a very appropriate and supportive response. Which can be hard to do because there are those safety concerns and we want to make sure that individual is safe. But first, helping them feel heard, helping them feel supported, and then we can move on to those safety concerns and providing some more of those kind of tangible resources.
0: Absolutely, because I can imagine that if someone has decided to disclose their self-injury to us, then They're wanting to talk to us specifically, to some degree, about their experience rather than be sent directly to some other resource. But being able to provide both will be helpful because the fact that they would feel comfortable enough to share with us, to disclose such a personal thing, I think, really points to our role as supports. They're tapping into their support system. A lot of people are concerned that asking about the self-injury could be problematic. And here we are, you're sharing that when someone discloses their self injury, it's okay for us to talk about it's okay for us to ask questions to support them in that moment without immediately directing them to another resource. Is that one of the points that you're making here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a a key point for us to keep in mind that that individual has chosen you or us to disclose that information. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing. There's something about your relationship that is comforting to them, that they trust you with this kind of key piece of information that's incredibly personal. And so keeping that in mind that they want to talk to you about it, right? And most often we know that a reason for disclosing is to seek some sort of support. And so if we can just keep in mind that they're choosing to tell us this really personal information, and part of that reason is because they want support from us, that providing that support is really our main Should be our main objective in that moment. And then if we can couple that with providing more um, tangible resources with regard to professional help, that's a great, um, but really that first step being providing support in the moment.
0: Earlier, you had mentioned that some people may have a shaming or angry or poor response to someone's disclosure. So not everyone has necessarily had the greatest initial reaction to a disclosure of a loved one's self-injury. So what feedback might you have for those that now know that their reaction to a friend or loved one's disclosure of self-injury was not as helpful or appropriate or caring as it probably could have been?
1: That's a really great question. Something that I've thought about a lot as well. Um, being on that, that end and now researching this, that the main thing I think is that it's never too late. Mm-hmm. It's never too late to provide care and support. And if you're able to talk to that individual and really explain why you had the reaction that you did and then providing that with some emotional support, that individual is going to see that you care, right? You're demonstrating that you care enough about the relationship and about them to go back and to readdress this subject. And I think it actually really highlights that you're willing to talk about it and that you're willing for them to talk to you again about it, which is a really powerful thing for a lot of people, especially if that first reaction or that first disclosure experience maybe wasn't how either of you, hindsight, had hoped for it to go. That it's never too late to build that bridge back up and to open that line of communication again.
0: One of the recommendations I often make when I'm talking to other clinicians and physicians and and medical professionals is that many times young people, for instance, they disclose their self-injury to a friend who's also young and may not have the greatest response. And so a lot of young people won't know what to do with their friend's own self-injury, let alone even a parent know what to do with their own child's self-injury. So I think that many times in my conversations with people who self-injure, particularly young Young people who self-injure, they tend to have a pretty good understanding of other people's discomfort with the behavior and trying to figure out how to initially respond right away, especially if it's not as empathic. A lot of parents, of course, they don't want their child to self-injure. They're uncomfortable with it, but one of the takeaway messages, my hope for parents In these circumstances is to acknowledge that their child likely knows that they're not going to be okay with the behavior that they're not going to be comfortable with the behavior but i'm thinking about these parents in particular now because you had recently published a study looking at the role of self-criticism in the relationship between self-injury and how parents express emotions yeah yeah what did you find and how how might it influence someone's decision to disclose their self-injury to their parents
1: This research actually stemmed back quite a while ago from my master's program and something I was really interested in were those family dynamics, because as a parent, you obviously would want to know and want to understand if your child is engaging in self-injury. And so understanding how the family dynamics might contribute to the behavior and more so how it might contribute to the disclosure of the behavior. In the study, we did find that individuals who engage in self-injury were more likely to perceive their parents as being critical, intrusive, and express more irritation towards them. Note that this is all perceived behavior, um, that we didn't have the parents report, we don't know what that relationship was actually like. But we also found that self-criticism played a pretty big role in that as well. Those individuals with more self-critical attitudes towards themselves demonstrated a stronger relationship between how someone perceives their parents in their own NSSI history. So it really highlights the potential interaction between the relationship with those around them and one's mindset in relation to disclosure. So I think that when we're thinking about how does this relate to the disclosure experience, particularly to parents, one thing to keep in mind is that their children are often coming in with or coming into that discussion with having some negative emotions and some negative feelings about themselves as well. And when individuals are entering these conversations, that they're often bringing their own self-use as well. And so it can be really helpful for parents to keep that in mind as much as possible, that this is a difficult conversation for them as well. And often, even in these scenarios, if they are concerned about or might be concerned about how their parents might respond, that they also feel bad about their behavior. They probably know that their parents aren't going to be approving of it, that it's not going to be this thing that they're going to have this incredibly loving conversation about. And yet, despite this, they're still choosing to tell them, Mm. right? Which really says something important about that relationship, that even though they're concerned, they might respond negatively and maybe they feel bad about their behavior. They might be embarrassed or ashamed to tell their parents about it that they're still choosing to do so. And that's a really, really valuable and really important thing to keep in mind. And with that, I think young people are really understanding of the fact that parents might not respond exactly how one would hope in an ideal situation. And that if they see they're trying their best and willing to even talk to them about it, that's a really cool thing. Um, And I think it opened the door for a lot of really great conversations in the future.
0: So even though teenagers or children know that their parents won't be happy, they're still choosing to disclose their behavior to their parents and seeking support.
1: Exactly. Right. Which I think can speak to both the relationship and the fact of how much an individual really wants to talk about this. Right. And really wants support from that parent.
0: Does this also apply to adults? So adults disclosing their own self-injury to their adult parents
1: That's a really great question that we haven't done a lot of research around. In all honesty, most of our focus is on um, young adults, so leading up into like the undergraduate college years. And we don't know as much about adults who engage in self-injury and their choice to disclose. The little bit, actually, that we have um, done in this area is with regard to romantic partners and starting to understand that relationship. And we see, at least preliminary at this point, a pretty similar dynamic where individuals might be willing to disclose but understand that it might not be met with the positive emotional support that they would ultimately want and understanding that that might be the case something we can often overlook is the fact that this was probably a decision that someone had thought about for weeks or months before choosing to do. And so they've probably run through a lot of those scenarios in their head of what could happen and how someone could respond and are probably going to be pretty understanding of getting any of those multitude of outcomes. So we don't know a lot exactly about the adult interaction with adult parents or with significant others or other primary supports, but The little bit we do know is we do see a very similar role and a very similar relationship with that disclosure process to primary
0: supports. Do we know if after those disclosures, relationship between those individuals, whether they're in romantic relationships or parent-child relationships, if they improve or worsen over time?
1: Uh, So we do see some relationship with positive reactions and feeling more comfortable around that individual. So we've studied this in a very rudimentary form, but uh, we have asked basically after that disclosure, what was your relationship like? Did you feel more or less comfortable around that individual? Would you disclose to them again? And we do find that with those positive emotional support reactions, we do see an increase in the comfort with that individual and the likelihood to disclose again. We actually don't see the opposite though. Um, We haven't found a relationship between receiving negative reactions and a report of like a significant decrease in the comfort in their relationship with that person, which I think really speaks to what we've been talking about that individuals can be pretty understanding of negative reactions, especially if they're then later met with something more positive and comforting. Some of the work that I've also done with regard to disclosure is with regard to disclosure of suicidality. And we see very similar associations. Some of the work that we've done was with individuals, adult males on a psychiatric inpatient unit at the Veterans Affairs Hospital. And we see kind of this dynamic that we're talking about here, where they report their romantic partner is actually the individual Who had the most negative reactions upon disclosure, but it's also still associated with that negative reaction experience with positive outcomes. And when we asked more about that, we saw a lot of things of like, well, they expressed a lot of fear and concern for me. And in that moment, it was negative, but over time it was a positive thing because it demonstrated how much they cared for that individual's safety. Right. So there's kind of a duality there of if we're meeting. Or if those negative reactions or might be perceived as negative reactions immediately, if it also is surrounded with some care and concern and emotional support, that over time, it can still relate to positive outcomes. And I like to think of how that can relate to young people disclosing to their parents, right? Because we might expect to see a very similar dynamic. And so if we can make sure to incorporate those emotional support reactions somewhere in there, even if it's after the fact, that that can still be a really positive thing.
0: What a comfort uh, for people <laughs> that have may not have responded the best way to know that it's never too late to go back and continue that conversation in a more positive way and to show the same support but in a more positive way that can help someone over time and improve the relationship because sometimes conflict and difficult conversations lead to deeper and more meaningful relationships and that's what I'm gathering from our conversation today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this really interesting and great opportunity to open that door. And we don't know this, but there's the potential that it's also going to open the door for other more meaningful, deeper conversations as well to say, hey, I'm willing to talk about this thing. It could open the door for other topics that the individual might be concerned about bringing up.
0: Do you have any other things that you would like to share in a relationship between disclosing one's self-injury and say stigma or any other points that we haven't covered?
1: I think you've put together a fabulous set of questions and so we've covered a, a lot of the things that I would really like to convey to individuals but you know the biggest thing I think is really highlighting the fact of like not being afraid to ask about it. Mm. We know that From our research, that very few people report that if they're asked about their self-injury, they don't disclose to that individual. And so it can be incredibly valuable for someone to know whether it's a professional, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, that they're comfortable enough with the topic to ask them about it. And we know that asking someone about it isn't going to increase the likelihood that they're going to engage in the behavior if they haven't already. So why not? Why not open that door and why not show them I care enough about you to ask about this? It might be uncomfortable for me, but I'm willing to do it anyways. Um, I think it's just a really, really important thing that sometimes gets overlooked and we're thinking about how should we respond, but really entering or opening the door for that opportunity for disclosure is a, a really powerful thing as well.
0: It's okay to ask. A lot of times that discomfort, as you mentioned, is on our our end. And so we fear that if we were to ask, then they might be uncomfortable discussing it or disclosing it. And if they've already disclosed it, then obviously they've shown some degree of comfort in their relationship with us. But I like that as a closing point, as far as being able to make it okay to ask about self-injury, just as it's okay to ask about suicidal thoughts, whether it's in our friends, our family members, or even children and teens. So as we come to a close, I'd like to bring it back to this as a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. Based on our conversation today about disclosing self-injury, what would you recommend to parents, say, of those children who have self-injured?
1: Foremost, just try to understand what your child is going through. That if they are at the point of having engaged in self-injury and willing to talk to you about it, that they're also experiencing a really tough time. And this is probably a really difficult conversation for them as well. So when they disclose, reminding them how much you love them, how much you care about them, and how much you're there for them is really, really the biggest thing. And I know that that sounds overly simplistic because it's a scary topic. But if you can do that, then the conversations are going to continue to happen and you're going to be able to engage in more meaningful conversation regarding self-injury.
0: Based on our conversation today, what might you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians like therapists, psychologists, or other researchers?
1: I think this goes back to what I had just mentioned, actually, is not being afraid to ask about self-injury, that a lot of times we might not think to ask about it in a clinical or research context. And so letting someone know that we're comfortable doing that is really, really important and really trying to understand their experience. I can think back to um, one of the clients that I've worked with who's engaged in self-injury for several years and we had a, a really open conversation about it and her expressed the level of relief that I was willing to engage in that level of a conversation about it was extreme for her. And it was then a regular topic of conversation and we were able to talk about how to work on it, how to manage emotions surrounding it. And so really just opening that door and saying, this isn't something I'm going to shy away from. And we can think of the same thing in a research context that, you know, we want to understand your experience and whatever that entails.
0: Building on that, in my experience, a lot of people, they're more than willing to talk about it with someone that actually is ready to listen and can be okay with these kinds of difficult conversations. So thank you for sharing that. Lastly, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to those individuals with lived experience of self-injury?
1: I think this is the toughest one that really what I think the message I would like to share is that help us understand what's helpful or isn't helpful for you, that the individuals you've chosen to disclose to are likely trying their best. Again, as we've talked about that, you've chosen to disclose to them for a reason. And the reason is probably because they're very valuable to you and a very valuable support and have provided some of that love and care in the past. Well, it's not your responsibility to kind of guide them and how to respond, but if you're able to express your needs to help them understand how they can respond to help meet those needs or how to best communicate their care for you, that's also going to be a big relief for them and will hopefully lead to a more positive experience for you in the long run.
0: What a great recommendation. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what a positive note for us to end on. Thank you, Dr. Ammerman, for joining us today. My hope is that this helps not only those with lived experience, understanding the role that people have in their lives in supporting them as they disclose their self-injury to them, but also for those individuals who are on the receiving end of those disclosures, being able to better understand and better support and go back to their friends and family and loved ones who disclose their self-injury to provide ongoing positive communication. If they've messed up, there's always hope to do better, to restart the conversation, to go back. So thank you very much for this insightful conversation and sharing your thoughts and insights and expertise.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I think this is such an important topic and I'm really glad to see that this is something that you're beginning to start the conversation about.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the psychology of self-injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy. So if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the crisis text line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting home to 741 741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow I-Triple-S on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.